Today on Hearing is Believing. And instead of focusing the text negatively, I think we need to change the conversation and focus on the value, the dignity, and how we can accomplish the mission of God together and how God has called us to accomplish that mission together. Connecting contemporary culture to the timeless truths of God's Word. This is Hearing is Believing. Jesus said you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And he said that in John 8, 32. And so here in that one statement, what Jesus does is he links, uh, he links truth and freedom. Truth and freedom. And remember who Jesus is. He's the creator. He's the eternal word of the Father. He was before the beginning. He's the one who's the Alpha and the Omega, the one who will be there in the end and even beyond the end. And he chose this Redeemer of ours puts an inseparable link between truth and freedom. And notice the order there. The order is important. It's truth and then freedom. Our society encourages us to consider the opposite, freedom and then truth. But Jesus puts the order in reverse. And so as Americans, we sometimes are blinded to our own blind spots, but as Americans in the West, we value autonomy, autonomy. After all, we're Baptist, right? And Baptist, we are a, comprised of a local autonomous church, and we celebrate that as Baptists as a key point of our celebration. But what is autonomy? What is autonomy? And how does autonomy relate to freedom? And if we take the words of Jesus seriously, we're going to learn that freedom is not synonymous with unfettered autonomy. Freedom is not synonymous with unfettered autonomy. In other words, freedom is not a free-for-all. Freedom has two sides. There's a freedom from and a freedom for. A freedom from and a freedom for. Oz Guinness wrote a book. Listen to the title of this book, A Free People's Suicide. A Free People's Suicide. He makes a distinction between what he calls negative freedom, that is freedom from, and positive freedom, freedom for. You say, well, what's the difference between negative and positive freedom? Freedom from and freedom for. Maybe a letter from John Adams written to his wife, Abigail, from May the 12th, 1780 will help you. Here we go. How about this? I must listen to what he says. And remember, we're looking at uh, the expression of both positive and negative freedom. Listen to what Adams says. I must study politics and war that my sons may have liberty to study mathematics and philosophy. My sons ought to study mathematics, philosophy, geography, natural history, naval architecture, navigation, commerce, and agriculture in order to give their children a right to study planting, poetry, music, architecture, 
statuary, tapestry, and porcelain. So you see what he did there? He said, I have to study these things, war and politics. No one desires to study war and politics. That's something that someone would want to avoid studying. If we have an, any notion of any type of hope for any type of utopia, we would not want to study war and politics. We'd much rather study, uh, maybe not philosophy, but maybe geography, maybe natural history, maybe uh, tapestry, or in his words, music. And the old English spelling, M-U-Sick, which makes so much more sense to spell it with a K instead of drop it off. But anyway, so Adams, he studies war and politics, something that no one would in their right mind want to study. And he does that to provide space for his children to pursue a greater ideal. Freedom from, freedom for, negative freedom Positive freedom. So negative freedom and positive freedom, they go hand in hand. And there's an author that I read by the name of Abdu Murray. If you've not picked up his book, it's called Saving Truth. It was written in 2019. I commend it to you. But Abdu Murray on the Ravi Zechariah speaking team, he says this, negative freedom and positive freedom go hand in hand. We need freedom from unnecessary restraints and interference so that we can, exercise, uh, we can exercise freedom for acting in the interest of the greater ideal. The ideal operates as a self-imposed restraint, keeping, you from abusing, keeping us from abusing our negative freedom. In other words, positive freedom is the ability to do not just what we want, but what we should. This is why Jesus binds truth and freedom together. Freedom has a boundary, according to Scripture, and freedom's boundary is the truth. And so when we turn our attention then to Holy Scripture, we turn towards the Word of God. And every word, according to Proverbs, every word of God proves true. Holy Scripture rightfully, or we should say here, truthfully, truthfully testifies to the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the words that he speaks through Scripture our spirit and life. And in knowing the truth, we know freedom. Now those points are relative for where we're going tonight. We're going into the text in 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 15. And those points are relative for our consideration of such a passage that our Lord has so graciously uh, lays before us this evening. And go ahead and turn over there if you wouldn't mind. 1 Timothy 2, beginning at verse 8. And the reason why that's so important is because we're going to look at a passage. We're going to look at a passage that has been used and abused by the enemy on both sides. Men have taken this passage and they've alienated women. Women have taken this passage 
and they've alienated the Word of God from their lives. And so approaching this passage with freedom in mind and with faith, love, holiness, and self-control is going to allow us to properly understand God's life-giving words to us this evening. So if every word is true, then these words are true. And it's our task together to understand what the Bible is saying and how it relates to us tonight. So hear the Word of God tonight. 1 Timothy chapter 1, excuse me, 2, <laughs> beginning at verse 8. 1 Timothy 2, 8. I desire that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved. <clears throat> Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Pray with me this evening. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> that was Spurgeon's prayer whenever he would uh, write a sermon. Uh, you would look, and it would, he would write in his sermon on the bottom right, sometimes the bottom left, two words, help, amen. And so we need our Lord's help this evening to really uncover this text. And listen, here's my ambition tonight. My ambition tonight is not going to give you the fine points of how this articulates in a present situation or circumstance. That's not my intention. My intention is simply to lay out the principle of this passage before us so that we will learn what this passage means. And so remember this. We're looking through Timothy. And our reason for looking through Timothy is so that we don't make shipwreck of our faith. And so as we look through Timothy together, we're seeking principles to keep our faith off the rocks, to allow us to arrive safe to shore. And so principle number five is uh, something I've entitled, Yes, Dear. That's how we make it safe to shore. We just simply say, Yes, Dear, and walk on. No, principle number five is to remember creation. Principle number five, remember creation. If we're going to make it safe to shore... We always need to hold before us this outstanding principle of God as the Creator. All-wise, all-knowing, sufficient Creator. And so as we think about God as our Creator, that really talks about worldview. And a worldview always begins with answering the question of origin. Where on earth did I come from? That's the question that my little children, they ask me. 
And usually they follow up with that question, where did I come from? Well, God created you. Well, where did God come from? And usually I say, well, good night. We'll talk about this in the morning. But a creator, a creator means responsibility. A creator means accountability and dependence. And no creator means responsibility without a foundation. No creator means little accountability. And no creator, listen, means unfettered autonomy. I think it is fitting that the first book of the Bible is called In the Beginning, Genesis. It's not just called that because it fits at the beginning, although it is a fitting beginning. It fits at the beginning because it tells the story of origin. It tells the story. It answers the question, how on earth did I get here in the beginning? If someone uh, was there to report what was in the beginning, they must have been there before the beginning. And the one who was before the beginning is not simply an onlooker, but a benevolent God who has graciously created all things. In the beginning, the Bible says, was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And that life was the light of humanity. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The principle of this text before us tonight are grounded in creation. Don't miss that. That's so important. The principles of this text are grounded in creation. Now, there's something that Paul's writing to. There's something that sparked this in his mind. No doubt there is an occasion that made Paul write what he had to write to Timothy, who was in Ephesus. But there's something beyond the occasion that God wants us to apply. And the principle, listen, the principle is not for men and women, uh, or not only for men, but also for women. The principle, in other words, is for the church. And the church is comprised of men and women. And remember this, the church is that uh, new community forged from the forgiving blood of Jesus, sealed together in the bonds of love by the Holy Spirit. And so 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15, it fits within the context of what Paul is doing in Timothy, but specifically what he's doing from chapter 2 on into the end of chapter 3. Look at the end of chapter 3 for just a moment. 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 15, it gives us the thesis for this section. Look at what he says here at the end at, at 14 and 15. I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. By the way, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of what? The truth. 
So we, as His redeemed, sanctified, and Spirit-filled people then, we have this opportunity, not so much an opportunity as it is a responsibility as a church, as His people, to remind others of a distant shore that we hope to arrive to. And the shores of that city, you know what they're called? Truth. So let's get into the text to discover God's message for us this evening. Number one, and this is probably my most exciting point. Number one, men and women together advance the mission of God. Men and women together advance the mission of God. Remember the context. The context is prayer. Prayer takes a priority. Someone asked me when I was talking to them about this text on staff, they said, are you beginning Wednesday night, are you beginning the sermon at verse 9? And I said, and leave the men out? No way. We can't. Because this is to the church and how the church ought to behave, how it ought to display the truth before the world. And so remember the context. Prayer is a priority, but what kind of prayer? Prayer for the purpose of gospel advancement. We are praying, trusting the Lord to provide us the circumstances necessary to carry the unfinished task of the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so we're taught in verse, uh, the first eight, seven verses, we're taught to pray that doors would be open. Even, listen, even if those doors that are open mean that we have to walk through fire. We're still encouraged to pray that the unfinished task of the spread of the gospel would carry forth unhindered to the ends of the earth. And so why do we pray that way? We pray this way because we know God's desire. You say, you know God's desire? Yes. Can you say with a full affirmation that you know God's desire? Absolutely. You say, how? Well, look at verse verse 4 of 1 Timothy 2. God desires all to be saved and come to the knowledge of what? The truth. There's that word that we just can't get away from. Truth. So what is it that sets us free? Truth. Truth is what sets us free. Truth is what the church holds before the world. Not simply just in what we say, but how we behave. But the Great Commission, so point number one, the reason I say it's my most exciting is because men and women together advance the mission. We together advance the mission. The Great Commission, that's what we call Jesus' last last marching orders to us. We call Jesus' last marching orders to us the Great Commission. And who did he give it to? Just the men who were there? Well, I'm not sure that it was just men there. Men and men. Women. And so to understand how we together advance the mission, what does Paul point to? He points to creation. Where do we have to go back to learn about creation? It's a book of the Bible. It's called In the Beginning or Genesis. In the beginning, consider that for just a moment. God created male and female as distinct and yet complementary creatures. Both male and female are made in the image of God. Both are able to commune with God. Both 
receive the mandate to worship and obey, to rule and subdue, and to be fruitful and multiply. Both are equal in dignity and value. Man, if we're considering the creation story further, man precedes the woman in creation order. God says to the man prior to the woman's creation, it's not good for him to be alone. But the alone can't mean that God is insufficient for the man. So what does the alone mean? The alone highlights the incapability to accomplish the purpose of God had in mind from creation for His creation. God creates a suitable helper for the man, a helpmate. And what's He call her? Woman. She compliments Him just as He compliments her. They are both distinctly engaged with God's mission for the earth from the beginning. And I want to say this. Listen carefully. Women contribute essentially and indispensably to God's mission. God accomplishes His purpose through both men and women. The church, what's the church called? The groom of Christ? That wouldn't make sense, would it? The bride of Christ. And the church, as the bride of Christ, is to emulate what was from the beginning. Both men and women in their distinct roles fulfilling the mission of God together as only they can as God ordains. Additionally, as the men and women carry forth the mission of God in the world through the church... They relate to one another as brother and sister. Scripture uses sibling language to describe the relationship between men and women in the church. And so there's this familial or family language that the Scriptures use to refer to men and women. And it means, by using that familiar language, it means that the kind of love we ought to have is a love for one another in a special sense. And I understand that relationship of brother and sister as those who are engaged, listen, in the family business of making disciples of Jesus through the church. And that engagement is one of honor, care, Sacrifice, sacrifice for one another as Christ who has redeemed and marked us both for sacrificial service is glorified in the way in which we love and serve one another. And so men and women are equal yet different. Equal yet different. They complement one another to carry forward the mission of God. Now, that's called the complementarian position. Another position is called the egalitarian position. What's the difference between egalitarianism and complementarianism? Well, here's the difference. Egalitarianism is their equal with no distinction. 
Complementarianism is equal yet different. There is a special job, as this passage is going to lay out, that men are incapable of performing. There's a special task that women should not perform. So we need one another to complement one another for the mission of God. So with the complementary nature of men and women firmly in place, what I want to do now is move on to how that complement carries itself out in accomplishing the mission of God. Point number two. Women focus on true doctrine. And listen, don't just hear this one message and think that this one message is not going to be followed by another. We deal with the women. We dealt with the men first, of course. They're to carry themselves in a certain way. And then we go over to the women. And then in chapter 3, we come right back to dealing with the men. But, so, but tonight, we consider point number 2. And point number 2, women focus on true doctrine. Let's deal with the men first, though, before. Look at this. Men are not to adorn themselves with disputing or quarreling. Women, likewise, are to adorn themselves in a certain way, in good works. And so the good works there is connected with what Paul has already said in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, and I'm sure about that chapter 1 this time, chapter 1 and verse 5. Look at what it says. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So what's the aim of the entire charge that Paul is laying out in Timothy? Love. It issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, but don't miss that last one, a sincere faith. And so with an incredible balance, Scripture encourages Christian women in particular here to be countercultural. And the way they're countercultural is through considering this faith in this God just by saying that God's a creator is countercultural enough. Scripture here encourages the ladies to be countercultural by enjoying freedom through the truth. Freedom through the truth. The women have a disposition of love, purity. Look at the bottom in verse uh, 15. Love, purity, and a sincere faith. And they're not to possess this attitude of Psalm chapter 2. In Psalm chapter 2, the nations assemble and they say, let us burst off the bonds that God has upon us. In other words, they think that they can become free by absolving themselves of truth. They see God as holding them back. And it says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry with you. And so this idea then is that these women are encouraged not to possess the attitude of Psalm 2, thinking that God is keeping them from something, negative freedom, but is keeping them for something, positive freedom. The for, listen, is the freedom that comes from truth. And so how do, uh, how do women then focus on true doctrine? Well, there are four ways. Look at the text. 
The first one is that they adorn the person within. Just consider Proverbs 31, and I don't have an opportunity to read it tonight, but just consider Proverbs 31. The qualities and characteristics of that woman, by the way, I believe it was Ruth, but anyway, the proverb, the characteristics of that woman are those inner qualities. Adorn the person within. In other words, I believe that if we're going to adorn the person within, if ladies are to adorn the person within, they're to have a quiet and gentle disposition. 1 Peter chapter 3 says this way, a parallel passage. Don't let your adorning be external. The braiding of the hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Whose acclaim are you asking for, is Peter's point. Isn't it better to see God's acclaim, and this is precious, a imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Very precious. Now you see where these passages get abused, right? Ladies, don't ever cut your hair again. Ladies, don't ever put earrings on. Ladies, don't ever dress nice. That's not what the passage is saying. It's not saying those things. That's a legalistic reading of the text. What is the text saying? It's saying adorn the person within. Don't neglect the person without. Scripture says that in other places. The glory of the woman is in her hair. There again, that doesn't mean that you can't have a haircut. You understand all things. The purpose is to, is to let what shines about your countenance be what shines from the inside out, not anywhere else. Adorn the person within. Secondly, strongly resist the spirit of our age. The spirit of our age values autonomy, truth that comes from freedom. The Bible values worship, freedom that comes from truth. And so the creation order does not permit the exercise of authority over a man. That's just what the Bible says. We don't have to hem-haw around it. We don't have to do hermeneutical gymnastics over it. It says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. That's what the Bible says. And so the Bible, the creation order, does not permit the exercise of authority over a man. However, however, there are so many things that a woman can do. And instead of focusing the text negatively, I think we need to change the conversation and focus on the value, the dignity, and how we can accomplish the mission of God together and how God has called us to accomplish that mission together. The third way to live out true doctrine or focus on true doctrine is for women to desire to be led. Women to desire to be led. Look at the text in verse 13. And gentlemen, pay attention. Because who is it at the end of the day that gets the blame for the entire ruin of this world? It's not Eve. She was deceived. 
It's the man. The buck stops with us. The blame rests with Adam who became a transgressor. Adam, in other words, should have been this man of of 1 Timothy 3. He should have led his wife. And the proper biblical order is for male leadership. And I don't apologize for that because I have a woman named Katie who has a quiet, gentle disposition. And let me just say this. I have seen so many men in ministry, pastors in particular, who their wives get them in a lot of trouble. And I am so grateful that my wife has a quiet disposition. When Katie and I were dating, before we dated, I was at Tripp McConnell College. It's university now. They had to let me get out before they became a university. But I remember that Katie was a part of a group of girls that they took their Bible reading serious. They took their pursuit of God serious. And they would talk around the lunchroom For all of us leeching boys lurching around, they would say, you know, I want a man who's going to be a spiritual leader. I want a man who's going to love Jesus because I know that if he loves Jesus, he's going to lead me well. He's going to love me well. Here I was preparing for the ministry, but you know what I lacked at that time in my life? Listen to the way that I say this. I did not have a vibrant, personal intimate relationship with God. Oh, I knew Him. I believed in Him. I was ready to go serve Him. But I was fed for my classes, Bible for breakfast, Bible for lunch, Bible for dinner. I didn't want any more Bible. It was all here in my head, but little here in my heart. I remember distinctly the first time approaching Katie on the bench at the front lawn. She was sitting there reading her Bible. And I knew at that moment, if I was going to win this woman, I was going to have to step up my game. Ladies, you have the potential of changing the world with this passage if you desire to be led. Now listen, that doesn't mean that you want to date Jesus, okay? He's, he's in the right side of the Father. He's not interested. But desire to be led. Are you the type of woman who desires to be led by a godly man? And if so, be assured that you are seeking Christ. Fourthly, the fourth way that, we can, that women can focus on true doctrine, fourthly, is fulfilling the mission as only you can. Look at this passage, and there's so much that we could say about this. Look at verse 14. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet, verse 15, she will be saved through childbearing. Now, there's a passage there that relates to Galatians At the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of the seed of the woman. The promise of salvation, where does it come? Everything is terrible news if you go back to Genesis and consider Genesis. The serpent's cursed. The man's returning to dust. But then He looks at the woman. 
And he said, from your seed, salvation is going to come. Ladies, let me say this. God has given you a beautiful ministry through childbearing. As a father of three, I remember saying, I, at first, I did not want to be in the room when my wife had a baby. I just, you know, I, I enjoyed the days of hearing the stories of lore when men used to go outside, smoke a cigar, come back in, and the baby would be over. I didn't want to be in the room because I was afraid. Without going into details, the most beautiful thing that my eyes have ever rested upon is to look at my baby girl for the first time. And you know who brought that baby into the world? My wife will be quick to remind me. It was her. I had a char-grilled hamburger while she was in labor. It was her. Women have a beautiful ministry through childbearing. Think about what 2 Timothy says in chapter 1. I'm reminded of your sincere faith. He's writing to Paul's writing to Timothy. 2 Timothy 1, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you, Timothy. Don't you ever tell me that Paul disregarded the ministry of women. The ministry of a woman is anything but mundane. Mothers, grandmothers, godly women, they're some of the greatest evangelists that the world could ever see. What does Jesus, Paul, Timothy, Martin Luther, John Wesley, Charles Spurgeon, and Billy Graham, what do they all have in common? They each had a mama. And the beauty of a woman's call is expressed perfectly in the last part of verse 15. Look at it. Faith, love, holiness, and self-control. All the qualities necessary, ladies, to fulfill God's purpose. For you. As we close, I want to read a letter to you. It's not my letter. It's a letter dated February the 9th, 1889, before this building was erected that we're in now, by Lottie Moon. Recently on a Sunday, which I was spending in a village near Pingtu City, Two men came to me with the request that I would conduct the general services. They wished me to read and explain to a mixed audience of men and women the parable of the prodigal son. I replied that no one should undertake to speak without preparation and that I had made none. I had been busy all the morning teaching the women and the girls. After a while, they came again to know my decision, and I said, it is not the custom of the ancient church that women preach to men. I could not, however, hinder their calling upon me to lead in prayer. Need I say that as I tried to lead their devotions, it was hard to keep back the tears of pity for those sheep not having a shepherd. Men asking to be taught and no one to teach them. 
We read of one who came forth and saw a great multitude, and he had compassion on them because they were as sheep not having a shepherd. And how did he show them compassion? He began to teach them many things. And then listen to what little Lottie says next. Brethren, ministers, and students for the ministry who may read these lines, does there dwell in your hearts None of that divine compassion which stirred the heart of Jesus Christ, which led him to teach the multitude many things. Thirty miles from Pingtu City is a gold mine. Nestled close among low-lying hills are two foreign houses and the buildings over the mine. Several American miners are there in the employ of the Chinese government. These men are living a hard, dull, isolated life in a remote region, far from home, far from friends, with the sole purpose of worldly gain. So much for the devotees of mammon. And then listen to the sting from this little lady. One cannot help asking sadly, why is love for gold more potent than love of souls? The number of men mining and prospecting for gold in Shangtung is more than double the men representing Southern Baptist. What a lesson for Southern Baptist to ponder. Signed. Lottie Moon. Today, missionaries on the field, women outnumber the men three to one. We have a mission to fulfill. And that mission to fulfill is together. God's orchestrated it so. May God raise up a thousand more Lottie Moons and may God raise up 1,000 more men ready to lead the gospel charge to the ends of the earth. How does freedom come? You will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Jesus is worthy of every one of our pursuits. Know the truth. The truth brings freedom. Father, help us to take what we learn, to trust you, and make it true of our lives. In Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, amen. You're listening to Hearing is Believing. For more information or to contact us, please visit hearingisbelieving.org.